by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, along with us today is our trusty vicar, Albert Bader. We are bringing our Easter season to a conclusion. Today we look at the readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter. This is a uh, uh kind of a unique Sunday in the church year. We're bridging the gap between the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Many churches this past uh, Thursday, uh, here at Good Shepherd this past Wednesday, we celebrated the Ascension of our Lord, the uh, physical, bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. Many Christians don't know what to do, do with that. And so now with the ascension of Jesus, a reality, uh, a historical event, we have one more Sunday in our, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in our Easter cycle. Pastor, just, just a comment about the, the general nature of this particular day in the church here. Well, it kind of is arranged in such a way as to move us from Easter uh, and to look with anticipation towards Pentecost, which is to come, and the coming of the Holy Spirit and uh, the growth of the church uh, in the time of the church that follows after that. That's why we move to green pyramids um, here as well in a couple weeks. And so it's kind of a, a pivot point, a transition point, if you will, from Easter Uh, and all the Easter season to Pentecost. And in a uh, unique feature of this uh, one-year series that we examine each week on Proclaiming the One, uh, a unique feature is, while it's not officially uh, a pre-Pentecost season, the last three Sundays in the Easter season serve very, very much as a pre-Pentecost, uh, get you ready for everything that you talked about, the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We don't, uh, we don't call them Easter Jesimas, but we really could. We really could. Let's dig into our introit for the seventh Sunday of Easter, selected portions of Psalm 27. Vicar? Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Alleluia. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Alleluia. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Teach me your way, O Lord. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. 
there we have it, Psalm 27. And uh, <clears throat> I remember in uh, grade school, preschool, little ditty, there's a, uh, there's a little ditty that's based on Psalm 27 uh, called Do Lord. I'm sure you were forced to sing that at some point in time in your uh, educational training, especially if you grew up in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate school system. Do Lord, oh, do Lord, oh, do remember me. Oh, yeah, 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 it's yeah. it's a horrific little ditty, but it's based on Psalm 27. And uh, we have we have so much better here with regard to the uh, compilation. The intro is pretty short uh, <clears throat> and just takes a few verses from Psalm 27. Uh, Pastor, the, uh, the condition of the person who is crying out in the very first verse of our uh, intro in that antiphon, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, your face, Lord, do I seek, hide not your face from me. And then we've got some alleluias in there because it's still the Easter season. What's the spiritual condition of the person who's uttering that, that cry or that prayer? One would guess that it's not too good if they are crying out for God to hear their prayer and uh, wanting God to see uh, them and not to be hidden from them. Yes, uh, there are many times in life when it appears that God is absent. When it appears that God isn't listening, God doesn't care. We don't know where God is because we can't see him. And it would appear that God is hiding. It is no coincidence that these verses are chosen for the Sunday after the ascension of our Lord. How did the disciples feel when Jesus ascended into heaven? Uh, dumbfounded. They're staring up into space. Uh, 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 what do we do now? What do we do now? And I think much of Christendom has that same attitude and same approach. So one, one um, way to handle that is to just ignore the ascension. It's a nothing. It means nothing. Another way to handle that is to kind of fill the void that supposedly Jesus leaves with things that are not of God, things that are not of Scripture, but man-made things. And we cook up all kinds of things to kind of fill the void or fill the gap with where Jesus is at. Let's go on here and see how the psalmist answers this cry, this plea. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, we're given a little bit of a hint as to the uh, spiritual state of the person crying out here by using the word fear. They're afraid. Exactly what they're afraid of, we're not 100% sure, but they're afraid. Uh, the absence of God is causing them consternation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Vicar, I'm going to ask you about that light and salvation, uh, the, those two things there. But, Pastor, we've talked about this quite a bit here recently. Just refresh everyone's memory. When we have the Lord, where it's in all capital letters like that, what does that signify? Who are we talking about here? 
when the word Lord is in all caps and small caps, uh, it is signifying the Tetragrammaton, which is the Old Testament name of God. Uh, Yahweh is maybe the way we pronounce it in English today, um, but that's the name of God. It means I am who I am. It's the name that God gave to Moses through the burning bush. Uh, and everywhere, just about every page in the Old Testament, you can see that name there, Lord, in all caps. Vicar, the Lord, God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is my light, and God is my salvation. Take uh, take each one of those individually, would you? What What does it mean that God is my light? Well, real quick here, God is our light. Whom shall I fear? Uh, when you hear stuff like this, you know, you still today, you go down into your basement and the lights are off and it's kind of eerie and dreary down there and uh, you might think of some of the scary movies that you watch. And when the lights are off as you're fumbling around for the light switch, you have very real fear. You can kind of feel the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. But as soon as you flip on that light switch and can see everything clearly, all the fear is gone. And that is what unless God you see is a, for us. unless you see a monster or a burglar. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, the the light can show you that there's nothing to fear, but the light can also expose the enemy. Yep. So, how is that good news? That is also good news for us because as. God shows light upon us. He shows us our sin. He shows us the things that we have done wrong, the things that have caused his wrath to rightfully burn against us. And yet, he is still, the second part of that, he is my light and my salvation. He reveals to us our sin and our corruption, and he also reveals to us his son, who has bled and died for us to give us life and salvation. Therefore, whom shall I fear? We have no more fear. Jesus has taken our fear away from us by paying the consequence of our sin. Perhaps the way to think about it is a patient on an operating table. Um, the light You want the light turned on so the doctor can see uh, the cancer that he's cutting out of your body or whatever he's doing in his surgery. You don't want him to do that in the dark. At the same time, when the light's on, uh, you might be able to see that scalpel inching closer to your body, and it's a little terrifying, but it's... Ultimately, when we're talking about God as the great physician, it's for our good, the things that he's bringing to light. And well, and you, know, you think about that, uh, the doctor with the scalpel coming to remove the cancerous tumor. What do you want the doctor to say when the surgery is all over? You don't want him to say, oh, man, we had a really good time with your surgery. You know, we listened to some great rock and roll music in the background. <laughs> it was a beautiful day outside. No, what do you want the doctor to say? What's the one thing you want the doctor to say? You want the doctor to say, I got it all. I got it all. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He got it all. Think of that. That is a beautiful, beautiful word picture. Pastor, there's one more here that says, um, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, what does it mean that God is the stronghold of my life? 
Well, in the ancient world, the way that you were kept safe is you would build some sort of a fortress or a building in which you could hide and withstand siege, withstand your enemies attacking you, and be kept safe. In fact, they just discovered one from uh, the the war that destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. There is one that was built in Egypt against the Persians and the uh, Babylonians as well, and uh, they, they just have dug it up in Egypt. The walls are... 14 feet thick. There's a tall tower in each corner. Uh, The idea being with the thick walls and the uh, towers, it would hopefully be impregnable uh, as the uh, enemy attacked you and, and surrounded you. And so that's what a stronghold is. Now, the illusion is made here that a building no matter how strong, it's not going to be the thing that ultimately keeps you safe. Um, You might starve to death on the inside. The wall might be breached. The enemies might uh, use towers to get in. Uh, You might be bombarded to death. But if our Lord is our stronghold, then we really are safe because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-encompassing, and there's nothing that can overcome him by definition. And with that stronghold, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've got nothing to be afraid. And then we have, teach me your way, O Lord. Here we uh, we get the, the flavor for this pre-Pentecost thing. Who is the ultimate teacher in the church, Vicar? God, the Holy Spirit, who calls, gathers, and enlightens the whole Christian church on earth. The uh, Jesus calls himself teacher and Lord. He says, uh, you call me teacher and Lord, and uh, rightly so, because I am. And yet one of the primary jobs, roles, responsibilities of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus has taught us, is to guide us, teach us all truth. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. We'll have more of that when we come back. We're going to look at our gospel reading for the seventh Sunday of Easter, John 15, 26 through 16, 4. Don't change that dial. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be right back. to K-N-N-A-L-P, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. On Christ's ascension, I now build the hope of my ascension. This hope alone has always stilled all doubt and apprehension from Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. This past week, the ascension of our Lord was celebrated. Uh, Hopefully, you had an opportunity to be in God's house and to celebrate the physical, bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus and his physical, bodily ascension 40 days later into heaven. On Christ's ascension, I now build the hope of my ascension. It's a a wonderful ascension hymn. We don't sing it very often. Where the head is, I will be. 
and uh, what a what a marvelous picture in that hymn that um, that hymn is taken for granted. That's it's some pretty rich theology in that hymn. We want to turn our attention in uh, segment two here as we look at the readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter to our gospel reading. It's the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. It's interesting during these Sundays of Easter where we have much of this upper room discourse with Jesus speaking to his disciples on Monday, Thursday, how we, we get big chunks of it, but nothing seems to be in order. We jump ahead, we jump back, whatever. And, uh, these words have been saved on purpose for this Sunday before Pentecost. You'll understand why in just a moment. Vicar, John fifteen twenty six through sixteen four. Jesus said, When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you you may remember that I told them to you. Okay, we've got some uh, power-packed words of Jesus, again, from this upper room dif- discourse. We talked about the, the uh, setting and uh, the, last su- the Last Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet. We've talked about all those uh, isagogical details. I want to get right into the text today because uh, there, are, there are some major, major themes that we need to talk about. Jesus says, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We have about 10 different things going on here with regard to the person and work of the Holy Spirit, with regard to the relationship between the Father and the Son, the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, the primary mission of the Holy Spirit in the role of Trinity. We got all these things all packed into that one verse, John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, when the Helper comes, it's a foregone conclusion as Jesus says this. It's not if the Helper comes or when the Helper gets around to coming, but when the Helper comes. This is a done deal. It's just a matter of time. So, when does the Helper come, Pastor? Well, that's a uh, kind of a trick question in a way. The helper comes. That's why I asked it that um, way. Because I'm a tricky comes, guy. You know, scripturally speaking, it happens at the Feast of Pentecost when he descends in flames of fire. Which we will celebrate we'll in celebrate. church next Sunday. In reality, the helper comes wherever his word is preached in its truth and purity and his uh, sacraments are administered according to their institution. And that is still happening all the time in churches across the world, even today. And so the helper comes and he comes and he comes and he comes again and again and again in all sorts of places and times and ways um, by 
pastors preaching God's word faithfully, by pastors baptizing uh, infants, and uh, uh, by pastors administering the Lord's Supper according to Christ's institution. Whenever that happens, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, is present there, and he always has one purpose in his coming as well, and that's to point people to the forgiveness, life, and salvation earned by Jesus on the cross, and that uh, they might believe that and have faith in that so that they might inherit eternal life. Okay, and uh, all of that is marvelous. All of that is true. All of that is well said. I want to I add one more uh, facet to this particular discussion. Why does the Holy Spirit have to wait until after the physical bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven before this miraculous outpouring takes place? What is the significance of the ascension first and then Jesus uh, promising and then the miraculous outpouring of the Holy, Holy Spirit, the timing of that? Well, I guess in one regard, it's a way to keep us from being Eastern Orthodox. Um, It is the Father and the Son who send out the Holy Spirit, and so uh, the Holy Spirit waits till Christ descends into heaven so that both the Father and the Son, and you see that's what it says there as well, um, whom I will send to you from the Father is what Jesus says. And there's other places where he talks about the Father will send the Helper. There's other places where he talks about he will send the Helper. We have this idea of Trinity. It gets a little bit confusing in that regard, but both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit as we confess in the Creed, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, And so that'd be one aspect of it, I guess. Okay. And uh, also, the Holy Spirit cannot do the full work that you described beautifully before about uh, leading people into all truth and connecting people through word and sacrament to Jesus until Jesus is done with his work. Jesus is perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, and in his perfect obedience, he actively fulfills the law on our behalf. He passively takes the punishment that we deserve to prove that God accepted his sacrifice. God raises him from the dead, and he is exalted and lifted up in the ascension to his proper place, king of heaven, uh, seated at the right hand of God, Revelation 5 kind of stuff. And this is what the Holy Spirit testifies to, the completed work of Jesus. And in a way, it's a little tricky as well, because um, we can't look back at the Old Testament and not believe that it's the Holy Spirit working through word uh, back then, creating faith to look ahead to Jesus as well. And so in a, in the larger scheme of things, things get complicated when we try to understand the Trinity with our limited human reason and within a framework of time, when really God exists outside of our three-dimensional reality and exists outside of time. And so it gets to be difficult talking about all these things um, in ways that we can understand simply. And I think God does a good job of teaching us in a way we can understand. Yeah, and I and I think that's a that's an excellent point that you bring up. Otherwise, we deny the Trinity if we think that there was no Holy Spirit before the miraculous outpouring or the Holy Spirit wasn't doing his doing, doing his full work bringing people to faith and keeping people in the one true faith. Um, it's just that the testimony of the Holy Spirit could only be to the promise that was to come. And now, the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he's able to testify 
It's the same gospel. It's the same salvation. But now it's not a promise. Now it is a completed work. That's the that's, that's the only exactly point. The truth. That's the only point that I wanted to make. I remember a discussion with a um, gentleman back in my hometown of West Point who grew up Lutheran and uh, then left the Lutheran Church and joined. Uh, I don't know if it was a Church of Christ or Assembly of God or one of the evangelical. Uh, non-sacramental churches that are out there, and he was all about Pentecost. He was all about Pentecost, and we were we were visiting one day, and he made a comment to me about how the Holy Spirit um, basically didn't exist before Pentecost. And I looked at him and I said, "I think you better reframe what you just said, because if what you if what you said is true, the way you said it, you just denied the Holy Trinity." And he got this look on his face. You could see he was completely rethinking his entire theological framework now. If the Holy Spirit exists before Pentecost, there must be a trinity. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't exist before Pentecost, there is. I mean, this is, this is vital and this is crucial. It's also very interesting that right after we have all of this Trinitarian filioque thing going on here, the seventh Sunday of Easter, next Sunday we have Pentecost, and the next Sunday we devote a whole Sunday. We better talk about this Trinity thing because people might be a little confused by now how all these pieces fit <laughs> yeah. together. Marvelous in how the... Uh, liturgical calendar is crafted the uh, the holy spirit is going to bear witness about jesus vicar this is not the only job of the holy spirit but this is the primary job of the holy spirit expound on that would you please it's not his only job because his only job are his other jobs also are like what we talked about last sunday uh, to convict us concerning sin, our sin of unbelief, our sin of falling away from God, all the sins of thought, word, and deed that we do, uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we would never believe that. Oh, I'm not so bad. There's nothing so wrong with me. Surely God will still love me despite this, that, and the other minor things. No, the Holy Spirit convicts us and says, you are a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. But then also, his main work to bear witness about Jesus, to bear witness about his completed work for us, his perfect life, his bloody death, and his glorious resurrection, so that we too might have the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation with him, and we too can look forward to the hope of rising to live forever with him in paradise. Good job. Pastor, do you want to add anything to that with regard to the the primary work of the Holy Spirit uh, pointing us to Jesus and that all of the things that flow from that uh, calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies, keeps, uh, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff, how all that uh, fits together. And yet if we focus on the other aspects the side aspects of the Holy Spirit, we miss out on the real primary mission of God the Holy Spirit. Well, in a way, you know, the vicar did a good job. In a way, it reflects uh, all of theology is this way. Uh, the uh, place to look to kind of understand this would be the small called articles where he goes through all this theology and says, the problem with this teaching is that it takes away from the personal work of Jesus. And the same thing is true for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Um, he's kind of like a spider web, and at the center is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is all the um, the uh, 
spokes going out from that spider's web and all the teachings and the things that the Holy Spirit does, if you focus on one at the, the expense of the others and you cut those other lines, the spider web falls or gets misshapen and something else becomes the center of your theology. But if you take all of those things together, uh, Christ remains the center of our theology and our teaching, uh, and, and really not just Christ, but the two teachings that are most important to Christianity, according to the Athanasian Creed, are the Holy Trinity and uh, the two natures of Christ and that person who died and rose and won uh, eternal life for us. So the Trinity and Jesus are the two most important teachings. And when the Holy Spirit's doing his work and we're keeping all those jobs as uh, equally important, Christ and uh, the Trinity remain in the center. Good job, both of you. And uh, I think this is a discussion that we need to have more often on how this Trinitarian theology really molds and forms and shapes everything about our uh, Christian thought. You know, you talked about the spider web. The same thing works for a, uh, a bicycle rim. And if you take one or two of the spokes uh, out of the bicycle rim, you hardly notice it at all. But in time, that whole rim gets weak. And in time, you collapse. That's what we're talking about here, folks. We've got so much more to say about the gospel reading for the seventh Sunday of Easter, John fifteen twenty six through sixteen four. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP ninety five point seven FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, we're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us on Sunday morning, 8 and 1030, Bible study and Sunday school for all ages in between. We pray God's blessings on uh, your worship, be in God's house, hear God's word. If you're not able to, check us out on the radio. All of our services are broadcast live right here on 95.7 KNNALP, The Cross. And you can check out our archives or listen live on your handheld device at our website, The Cross 957. Dot org. Uh, as you listen to this program and get ready to worship on the seventh Sunday of Easter, also be reminded that uh, next week, Monday through Friday, will be Vacation Bible School at Good Shepherd, Follow the Lamb, and uh, we'll be gathering from 9 to noon each day. You can come a little bit early on Monday and get uh, get registered, but we'd love to have you here, and uh, it's a uh, great privilege to be able to teach the little ones the good news about our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We want to look a little bit more at our gospel reading, John fifteen twenty six through sixteen four. We uh, we spent our entire last segment, segment two, on verse twenty six. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. 
And now in verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Who is Jesus talking to when he says those words, uh, the last verse of John chapter 15? Well, uh, Immediately, he's talking to the disciples who are gathered with him in the upper room. This is uh, Monday, Thursday that he's saying these things after all. Uh, and so that's the first place that we, we would go. But we also understand that he's saying these words to the church at large. Uh, and this is carried off then through the office of the Holy Ministry, through all those who proclaim God's word faithfully and truthfully. And so it's interesting because he builds that church and the preaching office then off the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. He's going to bear witness. And then he says, you also are as well. Uh, and this immediately takes place in uh, on Pentecost as Peter preaches the gospel there in the Temple Mount. It continues throughout the entire book of Acts and into the church at large, even on till today. People preach God's word about Jesus. We also have this directly fulfilled by the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who record for us the witness and the testimony that the apostles have seen from the beginning. And so therefore still, um, Matthew, for example, or in this gospel lesson, John, still teaches us about Jesus through the written word as well. So there's all sorts of fulfillments and things going on in just this one little verse also. The, uh, uh, and this continues on. This one little verse is kind of expounded upon throughout the rest of this. Vicar, the uh, Greek word for witness is what? Um, Martyrion. Yeah, yeah on, th- so that's the word. Is, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it because my my English pronunciation of Greek words is terrible and always has been. Here, but, here it's marturete. Marturete. But what Eng- well, where I'm going with this, what English word is derived from this word that we translate witness? It's the word for martyr, being willing even to die for your faith. Yes, and I think I think most people today have a, uh, a pretty weak understanding of being a witness for the Lord that would lead all the way to martyrdom. We don't want any part of that. We want an easy believism. We want uh, an easy path to heaven. And Jesus does not promise an easy path to heaven. Jesus does not promise an easy believism. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Okay, Pastor, two things here. First of all, I thought once you were saved, you couldn't fall away. How is, how is, uh, G- why is Jesus warning people about falling away when it's impossible for a true Christian to fall from faith? Um, and there are many people who actually believe and teach that, folks. Hope and pray you're not one of them. And second of all, what is the danger, what's coming up that would cause Jesus to give them this warning? Well, uh, first off, it is possible to fall away. Scripture warns us about that all over the place. And so there is false teaching in the church at large um, that says once saved, always saved. And Scripture does not back that teaching up. That's a Uh, false teaching as a result of human reason and intellect, not uh, according to God's word. So don't believe that, like you said, uh, that's wrong. Uh, The thing that's coming up that is making uh, Jesus warn them and tell them uh, to be careful is a great persecution. Uh, All the apostles 
uh, will eventually be killed for their faith, except for St. John, who dies at an old age, having survived a martyrdom attempt, at least one. Uh, Paul will come along later. He'll be uh, beaten, he'll be stoned, he'll be flogged, he'll be arrested, and he'll be beheaded uh, for his Christian faith. We have other great Christians that uh, we have recorded for us, how they were martyred in the early days of the church. And even up until this very day, uh, Christianity faces persecution and martyrdom. In fact, there was a Fox News article two weeks ago or so that talked about uh, the martyrdom of Christians in our current age is almost to the genocidal level, and yet it's not reported in the news media because it's politically incorrect to talk about that as a reality. And so that's that's a national news source that has uh, put that forward. And it's true. Uh, martyrdom faces all sorts of people. Suffering is what Christ has promised us. And so he warns us. He says, I say all these things to keep you from falling away. What things? His word, his gospel, um, the scriptures. Being in the scriptures is the place where the Holy Spirit creates faith. And that faith then can sustain us in persecution and perhaps even martyrdom in the days ahead. Well said, uh Hard words, shocking words, thought-provoking words, and uh, we we have things pretty easy for the most part here in the United States. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world are uh, are facing persecution that is um, near genocidal levels. You will never ever hear this talked about prominently on the major news networks. I was shocked that uh, that article did actually see the light of day, and maybe some people will start talking about it. But it was really kind of forced because of the Easter bombings at the Christian churches in Sri Lanka, and uh, most people are like, uh, "Where is Sri Lanka? What what is it? Uh, what, what's going on there?" And so I think some of these things have raised some awareness. But most people just don't care. And even though right now we're safe in the United States and we don't really face a uh, martyrdom or persecution that is great, uh, don't become soft because of that. Be in the word. Uh, it's coming. I, and I just read another article this morning talked about 41% of Americans now believe socialism is a good idea. And one of the pillars of socialism, if you go back and look across the board, is the removal of religion. And so keep that to the forefront, not to get political or anything like that, but uh, that's a reality that is around the corner. Yes, and uh, this shouldn't surprise us. Um, we we have... Uh, uh, the Beatles back in the 60s telling us to imagine that there's no heaven, imagine that there's no God. Uh, the, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Satan packages these same old lies in new clothing, seeing whom he may des uh, devour. And uh, this program is not to talk about the economic benefits of capitalism or a laissez-faire economy versus a socialism or a socialistic democracy, that kind of a thing. Anything that says we should eliminate God from the picture is evil, is some from Satan. I don't care about your, uh, your political affiliation. This is just common sense Christianity. This is what God's Word teaches us. And unchecked capitalism that is nothing more than worshiping your money or worshiping your greed is just as evil and just as satanic. So we do not look to our economic systems to save us 
There is only one Savior, the Lord and giver of life. Vicar. (coughs) The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Can you think of an example of any kind when someone would hurt, persecute, or kill Christians and think that they are doing a service to God? Well, let's look at the Old Testament first. Basically, Jesus says, you who killed the prophets, and then you whitewash their tombs and make them look beautiful. Uh, The people that preach and taught God's word and its truth and purity, the kings of the day who were evil and not God's true people, killed them because they were speaking a message that they didn't want to hear. They were being confronted with their sin. I was just going to ask you, why did they kill them? Because they didn't like the words coming out of their mouth. Yep. And then the New Testament example would be St. Paul. Before he was St. Paul, he was Saul, heavily persecuted the church, was probably at the first uh, martyrdom, St. Stephen, uh, holding the clothing as the men went out and stoned him to death, and then heavily persecuted the church, thinking he was doing this for God and for the benefit of God, when really it was to the benefit of Satan and his own workings behind the scene. You uh, you gave two excellent examples there with uh, the Old Testament prophets and uh, the New Testament conversion of Saul, who became Paul. Uh, how is all of that uh, swallowed up and prefigured in how our Lord and Savior Jesus was taught? Pastor? Well, Christ says, uh, don't be surprised if they persecute you because they persecuted me first. And uh, really, his persecution, his suffering is the... A persecution and suffering par excellence, if you want to use a positive turn of phrase there. Uh, Christ is arrested wrongly, tried wrongly, uh, stripped naked, beaten, mocked, nailed to a cross, spat upon, mocked, stabbed, dead, buried, all of it wrongly done. Uh, and so if that happened to somebody holy, perfect, and righteous like Christ, what more could happen to us who are sinful and yet still confess the truth the same way. It's uh, it's amazing that all the government authorities just kept saying, uh, this guy's done nothing wrong. This guy's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in him. And yet Jesus is the one who takes the hit. He speaks only to refute falsehood, and he keeps his mouth shut, and he takes it. Excuse me, Jesus, as the fulfillment of everything here. Persecution is coming. We should expect it. It's going to get worse in the United States before it gets better. (laughs) But remember, our Lord and Savior Jesus is the one who has been persecuted and overcome that persecution for you. What we need is a new heart. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about when we come back from break. In our last segment, we're going to look at the Old Testament reading for the seventh Sunday of Easter, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. Don't change that down. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. That I may serve you
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're looking at the readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter. In part one of our program today, we looked at the introit, selected verses from Psalm 27. In parts two and three, we looked at the Holy Gospel for Easter 7, John 15, 26 through 16, 4. And we highlighted the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the seventh Sunday of Easter, which is in very, very many ways a pre-Pentecost Sunday. Today we want to look at our Old Testament reading in our fourth segment, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. Vicar? Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my just decrees. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. We have covenant talk here at the end of our text. Uh, You will be my people, and I will be your God. Pastor, uh, covenant is uh, a word that is prominently used and prominently expressed. Uh, expounded in Scripture, and yet some people have taken this covenant language and this covenant understanding, and they have turned that into a material principle that the covenant is really the most important thing rather than the forgiveness of sins, justification on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is this covenant talk at the end of our text, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-eight, and how does it fit into our understanding of God's relationship with us properly understood? Well, there's a big topic there. Um, a covenant would be uh, a deal made between two parties, uh, and in the Hebrew it always talks about cutting a covenant because the way you made a covenant was if you and I were going to make a deal, uh, we would get an animal, a sheep or a goat or something, and we would cut it in half. and We would lay the two sides uh, down on the ground with the blood and the, the mess in the middle there, and to make the covenant, you and I would go stand in the middle of there in that bloody spot, and we would say, here's the deal, this is what we're going to do, and if you break your part of the deal, then I get to do to you what you, we did to this animal, and if I break my end of the deal, you'll do to me what we did to this animal, and that's a covenant. So and it's a promise and a threat. It's a promise and a threat, it goes both ways, and it's a deal between the two parties. And we have a covenant that we trace throughout all the uh, the Old Testament, um, you know, it really 
it begins back with Adam and Eve, essentially, uh, when that animal is killed to make garments to cover their sin. We also have then Abraham uh, and uh, uh, the covenant of circumcision. We have uh, the covenant renewed with Noah after the flood, with Isaac, with Jacob, all these people, this covenant gets carried forward. And the point of the covenant then ultimately is, if you go back and you look at all these, that there's going to be an offspring, a savior, someone who will rescue us from our sin. And that's God's end of the deal. He's going to do that. And in a way, too, uh, when God stands in the midst of this dead animal uh, and says, if you break your end of the law, the deal, then you deserve to be like this, that happens when Adam and Eve disobey God's word in the Garden of Eden. And yet the weird thing is Christ switches it around He becomes a man so that he can take our punishment that we deserve from the covenant. He bleeds and dies for the punishment we deserve in the covenant. Christ takes our place in the punishment part of it so that all that's left then is the promise. And the promise is that we shall be God's people, but it's not just talking to Israel or to Judah or to people descended from Abraham directly. It's talking about all those who believe in Christ and what he's done for them. And this text then builds off of our gospel lesson in the work of the Holy Spirit, calling, gathering, enlightening, and sanctifying the entire church through baptism, through uh, creating a new heart, through the preaching of the word uh, that uh, is going to go forth. And, and I'm probably jumping ahead here a little bit, but covenant language I, I all has listen, to do with that. I could listen to you talk this talk all day long because there are so many people that want to run this covenant language outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They want to run this covenant language outside of the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus, dividing the world into seven covenantal periods and all this kind of stuff. And uh, my head hurts when I hear that stuff. What you just said I could listen to all day. Vicar. Well, and that's a great point to make, too, because as we read through this Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 36, we have lots of will and shall language. Uh, These are things that are still to take place in the future. And as Pastor Moline was saying at the beginning, what do you absolutely need for a covenant? You need blood. You need something sacrificed. And so this is all pointing us forward to Jesus when his blood is spilled for us, the blood of the new covenant in his blood, so that we have both peace and comfort through it. Jesus shed his blood on our behalf to cover for our sins when we break this covenant, and because of that, we have peace with God. So if you are enamored in covenant theology, and the primary thing is the promise the promise you make or how you keep that your end of the bargain, you have got covenant all wrong. Covenant is all about Jesus, the bloody death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus for you, fulfilling the covenant. Your relationship, I will be your God, you will be my people, is impossible apart from the blood shed by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In um, uh, Toward the uh, two-thirds mark or so in our text, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28, I'm taking this text and working backwards in case you hadn't figured that out. Um, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This doesn't sound like I'm the one doing anything to fulfill the covenant. God is going to wash me. God is going to give me a spiritual heart transplant. God is the one running the verbs. God is the one doing the doing. And I am just simply and purely passive. Pure gift. How does the understanding of covenant And normally there's two parties and you do your part and I do my part. How does this understanding of covenant jive with this gift talk and God doing all the work? Well, that is an interesting uh, thing to consider because we also have the covenant in the Old Testament where the smoking pot is the one that goes between the two halves of animals. And this is, remember, it's Abraham, correct? Correct. Uh, He has to chase away the birds of prey that have gathered. He cut the animal in half, laid the parts out. Birds of prey come and start eating the animals. He chases them away, waiting for God to show up. And God shows up in a smoking pot. And only God goes between the two parts to make this deal with with Abraham, saying, I'm going to be the one who keeps both ends of this deal for you. And that promise then is passed on all the way and fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus, where God punishes sin by killing God on the cross. Uh, God rescues us and gives us eternal life by taking the punishment we deserve. And so uh, it's kind of an interesting thing in that regard. God does everything necessary for our salvation and we can't add or subtract from that by our own works. It is uh, it is interesting that most of the time when we think about promises or covenant, you know, you drive down the road on I-80, and sure enough, if you're on the road for more than 10 minutes, you're going to be passed or pass a truck that is the covenant truck line. Uh, you see them all over on the, uh, you know, they, they keep their word. They keep their promise, the covenant truck line. All right, that's who you want to do business with. Normally, when we think of a covenant or a promise, we think of two parts, two parties, two parts. Uh, You move into a subdivision here in Lincoln. Normally, there's a homeowners association. There are covenants that you have to keep, promises. You know, you can't park your uh, camper out in the driveway. You can't hang your clothes up on a clothesline, The, the different covenants that are in here. What we are talking about here in this particular situation and what Pastor Moline was talking about with the uh, Abrahamic covenant and the smoking pot is a unilateral covenant, a one-way covenant. We don't think that way. We don't think that way. It is a one-way covenant where God is doing all the doing. And thank the Lord, he's doing all the doing, because if we had anything to do, we would certainly mess it up, and our salvation would be in doubt. Why does God do this? At the beginning of our text here in Ezekiel 36, the answer kind of knocks your socks off. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. You have profaned it among the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. It seems a little odd, Pastor, that God says, hey, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for my name 
my name which you had profaned. Is this some kind of egotistical thing that God is doing, or what's the big picture? No, I think this is, again, another place where we're supposed to see Christ behind all of this. And actually, if we go back to the beginning of Scripture and we see Christ behind everything uh, from beginning to end, everything makes much more sense. God rescues Noah from the flood, not because Noah's such a great guy, but because God made a promise that I'm going to save you from your sin to Adam and Eve. And if God wipes out every single human, then God has broken his promise. Um, This promise is carried on the whole way through with Basically, every Old Testament story you can see up until you get to the birth of Christ, and then really with every New Testament and time of the church uh, event that you can think of as well, God's doing everything to glorify God and Jesus. And then we are caught up and carried into that through the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the Word, and the administration of the sacrament. We are the beneficiaries of God's great love and God's grace and mercy. His chesed, steadfast love. Doesn't show up anywhere today, but it is everywhere it is implied. Vicar, we need to bring this uh, session to a close. Would you uh, please pray for us the collect of the day for the seventh Sunday of Easter? Let us pray. O King of glory, Lord of hosts, uplifted in triumph far above all heavens, leave us not without consolation, but send us the Spirit of truth, whom you promised from the Father. For you live and reign with him and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Bader, I am Pastor Poppy. Sunday morning, get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, and go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ.